We're in the, in the middle, you could kind of say, the early middle, I guess, section uh, of, of a study through the book of Mark. Uh, we're, 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 we started with Mark 1, and we're working our way through, all the way through the end of the book. It's traditionally what we do here at the Grace Works. That way we, we preach the entirety of God's Word. Uh, and so just kind of give you an idea of the way that we approach our preaching schedule uh, if you are newer. Uh, we find ourselves in Mark 6. Last week, Pastor Dave, uh, while I was gone on a youth retreat, preached the uh, first six verses uh, of, of this chapter. And so we'll be picking up in 6, the second half of that verse, 6b, we'll call it, uh, in, in the gospel of Mark. And, and today we're going to be challenged uh, again, the author Mark writes uh, in, in a very concise way. And, and so a lot of weeks we're going to see things, uh, a couple different stories. But again, I believe that they point us towards, uh, you know, ultimately one uh, kind of encouragement or main idea that we can take away from this. And today we're going to see uh, or be encouraged to live well. And then also to be able to die well in the end, whenever that end might come. So live well, die well. Mark chapter 6. Uh, again, I'm going to have the, uh, the words up here on the screen. You can follow along there or in your own Bibles. Uh, and, and I'll read that out loud and we'll see what God has for us this morning. So starting in uh, the second half of verse 6, it says, And he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus had been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. People there thought that they already knew who he was, right? They knew Jesus, the son of Mary. Uh, a lot of them probably knew Joseph, and he had, he had been the carpenter, uh, the carpenter's son, and so they kind of knew him through that because he was from Nazareth. So when he was in Nazareth, he was rejected by his own people because they completely missed out on who Jesus really is. And, and his response to this adversity is to press on, in fact, to multiply his ministry. So that's what he does in, in verse 7. It says, and, and uh, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirit. So Jesus had been training his disciples uh, for ministry, and now it's a good time to send them out. We've seen story after story of him preaching, of him healing, uh, uh, Jesus commanding the crazy water on the sea, calming the storm, casting out demons, raising a little girl from the dead. I mean, we've seen a lot in these first six chapters, and, and Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, what they should do, what ministry should look like. Now, a good mentoring tool or discipleship tool, uh, tool or even if you're just a boss or a leader that, that I've found is, is, is really what Jesus did here. Uh, and so I'm going to read through it real quick. It's something that I like to try to do anytime I'm in a mentoring situation uh, with anyone. It's, it's I do, you watch, and then we talk about it. So I'm going to do most of the work I'm gonna, and you're going to get to watch me today. And then afterwards, let's try to grab some coffee and we'll talk about it. Uh, the second step, though, it, to that is I do and you help. And then we, we get together and, and we talk. We debrief on it, what's going well. And then ultimately, uh, you want to turn the corner there where the other person is doing a lot of that work is doing a lot of the reading or the learning or whatever it might be. Um, so you do, I'll help you a little bit, 
And then in the end, again, we'll talk about that. And then finally, you do, I watch, and we talk. And if you do and you're ready to go, then I'm able now to start helping somebody else. And you found yourself in a place where not only can you do the work, but now you can start mentoring others. And and so Jesus is doing something here uh, on earth for all mankind. It's a mission of grace, and he's called these disciples to be a part of it. Because even though Jesus was speaking to thousands of people at a time, right, thousands and thousands, he still could only have a touch on so many people. Only so many people could hear him, no matter how hard he worked. So the, the, the method that he chooses to tell the whole world is through the people that have been transformed by his grace. And the initial people that we see in that sphere are his disciples. And yet today, a lot of you sitting out there, if not most of you and I, have been transformed also by his grace. Now, we have heard the good news, we've received it, we've applied it to our lives, and now we need to be motivated to move forward in that, though. We also noticed, though, as we were prepping this week, uh, as we were reading and studying, we see that Jesus sends them out two by two. We think this is significant. Um, The law in that day and age required two witnesses to establish something as a matter of truth. So instead of just being a, a guy who comes to a town and, and tells stories about Jesus and, uh, and about God and, and this new relationship or this new thought process or concept or idea on how to engage with God and, and being called a crazy person uh, or, or who is this guy just you know, wandering around from town to town, he, he embraced that idea of sending two people out together. So when they got there, they could speak the truth together. Uh, and the other thing we, we thought of is it really it tones down the idea of individuality. So uh, you could have a big personality like a Peter, let's say, and, 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 and be paired down with someone who compliments him. Uh, if you've been to the Graceworks for any amount of time and got to know Pastor Dave and myself, you know that in a lot of ways we are complete opposites. Uh, and and uh, I, in a lot of ways, wish I was more like Dave. And I think secretly Dave wishes he was more like me, but he'll never tell you that. But we, we kind of, we joke that we're the yin and the yang. We balance each other out. You know, he's taller, I'm shorter. He, no, no, not those kind of things. But just in the way we even engage with people, it's different. Uh, and there's just a lot of balance that comes through to that. The third thing that we saw uh, kind of goes along that line. It kind of suggests the necessity of teamwork. Jesus is saying, I want two of you to go together. And, and, and so we've, we've embraced that at the Graceworks. Uh, when we initially launched our first campus 10 years ago out of Emmanuel Bible Fellowship, we sent two people, Pastor Kevin and Pastor Stephen. Pastor Kevin was full-time and, and was the pastor there. Pastor Stephen was a tent maker. He was a teacher in Tumwater, and then he was also the pastor, and he worked into a full-time position as we grew. But we knew the importance of not sending Pastor Kevin or a pastor out on his own to try to do the ministry. Uh, we've, we've, we've read through Ecclesiastes before. Chapter 4, verse 9 talks about the two are better than one. So a very biblical concept. So, and, and there's something that's, that really is wonderful that happens when we do ministry together. So when, when I do ministry with Dave, when we work on sermons together, when, we, uh, when we're praying for you guys, when we're strategizing about where the church should grow, we get two perspectives um, 
you know, and, and that is really beneficial. Uh, we haven't had to do this, praise God, in the six plus years that we've, we've had our campus going here in DuPont, but it, 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 we, we have that in the back pocket that one of us can be strong if the other person is sick or hurting. And I guess in my mind, I'm thinking more on the short term. If Dave were to get sick Friday, obviously I could preach on Sunday, two days later. So that idea that we can continue on in ministry. There have been weeks where we strategically say, hey, I've been under the weather for a couple weeks. Maybe you take it this week. And, and, and so we've seen it more in the long run, but not necessarily on the short. But we, we have each other's back. Uh, there's also accountability. Um, Dave and I see each other at the office. We meet together as, as a big staff, then as a pastoral staff. But then there's also the opportunity for Dave and I to sit there one-on-one and we have accountability with and for each other. Uh, and it's refreshing. It's more fun. When, uh, when they came to me and they asked me if I wanted to launch a campus of the GraceWorks seven years ago, uh, at, and they said, we want you to be the pastor in DuPont, um, one of the, the, the caveats, or one of the things I really wanted to make sure is that I was being launched with someone uh, that I could see doing ministry with for a long time. And, and that was Dave. Um, and it is. It's refreshing. It's more fun. So I've come to believe in the uh, ministry mathematics that one plus one doesn't just equal two. It's far more than that because I think it's a, it's a multiplicative and even exponential aspect to team ministry. We go farther together. We go farther together. And Jesus sends them out two uh, at a time. He gives them the authority and the, the very ministry that he's been doing And he gives them a charge. Look at verses 8 and 9. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except for a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Wear sandals, but don't put on your second tunic. So again, a lot of these details, they seem kind of weird. They're in the other gospel accounts, and they actually vary a little bit. So that was a little weird to look at this week. Um, and, and, And so we... As we looked at this, we thought to ourselves, what we see really here is Jesus sending out the disciples saying, you don't have to plan for everything that's going to happen. Trust me, trust your heavenly father, and I will take care of you. Uh, We did notice also that the the list of what they were to take was almost the same as in, in, uh, in Exodus, what God told his children to leave with. In other words, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to have to get going quick. So grab the bare essentials and get out of Egypt, right? It's almost the same idea. I've got your back. The bare necessities will really keep the disciples and even you and I from being materialistic, right? And here at the church, we don't want the ministry to to ever be about what we have or, or what even we can do. But we want it to be about Jesus. And we want it to be about the lives that can be changed by the story of the cross. What we've been singing about and what we're looking at and studying. It's Jesus. And that's where we want to focus in on. Uh, again, it doesn't mean we, we don't have things. Obviously, we have stuff and we try to keep it nice. And we want this to be a place that people enjoy coming to. But we also want to keep a balance in that focus. Uh, and it ensures that your faith is in God. Um, to provide for you. As disciples, they were going out with the bare minimum. God will take care of you. In ministry here, we want God to provide for us as a church. 
Now, there are tangible ways you and I can be involved in that, doing the ministry uh, and, and in giving. We can give towards the ministry, but we want to always give God glory, right? Give God the glory for what happens here. So as some instructions go on here, uh, it, it says whenever you enter a house, stay there until you de- depart from there. Again, this is really just kind of nuts and bolts stuff that Jesus is telling his disciples. It might be tempting to accept an invitation as you're in town to a different house, right? Do you have those friends that you go over to their house and you really like going to their house? You know, it's, it's really, it's comfortable, uh, the food is always good there, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the fellowship is good. Maybe the beds are a little bit softer. If it's a family member or a friend out of town, you like going to that house, right? And you just kind of know what, 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 what Jesus is saying here is when you go into a town and you stay in a town, you may be there for a couple of days. You may be there for a couple of weeks. And, and if you get to know somebody else, Right while you're there in their state, don't be tempted to leave the home that was initially opened up to you so graciously to go to something bigger and better. Stay there, invest in the home that that you were put into, uh, an investment that will last. Now, there are some uh, applications that we can even take from that. Um, You, as as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I know that we can sometimes be uh, intrigued with a bigger church, uh, maybe a church that ha- offers more things midweek or a bigger foyer. I mean, ours is pretty small out there. When you guys are getting your name tags, it gets a little bit tight. Or, or maybe a better preacher. Maybe you hear about a guy that, that better, that's better than uh, Pastor Mark. Uh, maybe they got a better bathroom. Who knows what it is? But be... be Cautious in sacrificing the relationships that you have built or that you're building for the next shiny thing. Now, in no way am I saying if God is calling you somewhere else, don't go. But don't be the, 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 the Christians that are just hopping from one church to the next, always looking, how can this church benefit me? Be willing to stay in a place where, you know what, you're part of the investment. You're going to be investing in this church, in this community. And praise God for these kind of instructions that Jesus has given to his disciples. Now he goes on in verse 11 saying, and if any place will not receive you, right, because they're going from town to town, and they won't listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Again, this is intriguing. It's like, okay, what, what exactly are you saying here, Jesus? What are, you, what are you telling your disciples to do? This was a prophetic utterance against those that rejected a prophet's words. This happened in the Old Testament. God would send his prophet to a town to bring a word, and if he was rejected, he was supposed to shake the dust off of his feet when he left there. Hey, I came, I tried, you rejected me, your blood is not on my hands. This is an interesting concept for us in, in the call to evangelism, though. First, I don't, I don't think that we take this text as total corollary, right? This was Jesus' instruction for this mission, for these 12 as they went out two by two but not necessarily a blanket command for every mission. The mission that you and I have been given in in Matthew, when Jesus was leaving, go into all the world and and preach the gospel to every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We already know that there are many parts to that mission. 
not every one of us will leave the United States for the sole purpose of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Because we can support from here. We can pray from here. We can help people learn and grow and become the missionaries that God has called them to be. And so we know that the mission is different. But understand that you will face not only opposition, but also disappointments as you share the gospel with others. There will be times when someone rejects the gospel and even rejects you on account of the gospel. While I I would encourage you to continue to pray and believe that God can turn the hardest heart, you might still have to move on from that place. Remember that we are called to plant a seed. Uh, God doesn't rest. He continues on, right? We've talked about the seed before and the four different soils. And there will be times where you will invest in people and they will reject not only the gospel, but you. And at that point, you have to trust that God had called you to do a certain thing at a certain time and that you're going to trust the gardener, God, that in his time, more watering will come to that seed, et cetera, et cetera. And so don't be afraid uh, to do just your part in sharing the good news. Picking up in verse 12. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. Praise God for their obedience, right? We have these six groups of two. They're going out, right? Are you and I obedient when we are sent? Do we truly believe what the Bible says about us being sent? Are we living that kind of life? This was a convicting question even for me this week as we, as we were wrestling through this passage. Mark, are you going on Sunday and, and, and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and the good news that comes through that, but what are you doing with the rest of your week? Are you prepared with the word that God has called us to be prepared with? Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. So this is an encouragement to me. We need to be ready to proclaim the good news at all times. Do we listen to the voice of God when he asks us to share the good news with others? Are we in tune with the Holy Spirit who resides inside of each one of us as believers? Or do we hear something and then we push it away? Right? Well, this isn't really the time. They might reject me. They may, I may not know the right words. Right? I, I know I've been there before. And I wish I could say it was like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But there are still times where I say to myself, man, I I, I think there's an opportunity here. But but what if if it's rejected? What What if I say it wrong? And yet we have to trust God. Holy Spirit, you will lead and guide and and direct and even put the words into my mouth when I don't have them. Right? And we need to be ready with God that word, sharing it with others who need to hear the good news of the gospel. Preaching repentance is what John the Baptist and Jesus himself preached, right? Now, what does it mean to repent? It means to change your mind. So they were being called, the Jewish people were being called to change their mind about who they thought God was, who they felt God was, and how they as a people could interact with God. That was part of the repentance. Now, they were also being called to repent from sin. If you're living in sin right now in your life, 
You need to stop doing it. You need to change your mind about why you're doing it or how you can justify doing it. And then you need to turn towards God. Again, doesn't mean you're not a believer. It just means you've allowed yourself to grow callous and you're accepting yourself for less than God intended you to be. So when we preach repentance from here, it's not only for those who haven't placed Jesus Christ in their heart, in their lives as their Savior, but it's for you and I also. If we're living in sin, if we've chosen sin over God, we need to repent or turn away from it. And that is what they, the disciples, that what Jesus, what John the Baptist had been calling the Jewish people and also the Gentiles, we saw that with Jesus a couple of weeks ago, to repent, to change their mind about things, to quit making judgments or decisions based on their own feelings, but on that of God's. And then for you and I to change the mind, our mind about the solution to our sin problem. Okay? Repentance. In other words, how many people, even in Christian churches, if you talk to them, will acknowledge there is sin in their lives, uh, yet they feel they need to be good enough to balance somehow this cosmic judge's scale that maybe they'll get into heaven. There's a lot of confusion. And I think sometimes it's our fault if we're not explaining it well. Uh, People do bring a lot of preconceived ideas into their relationship with God. But you have to understand the only solution to sin and the problem of sin in this world today is Jesus Christ crucified. The blood that poured down from his hands and his feet and his side that in faith can be applied to your life. That's it. We need to understand that and we need to be able to articulate that to people. Jesus Christ paid it all. You cannot be good enough. Now, when you understand that and you embrace that and you accept that, you bet we're going to encourage you down the path of discipleship. But that is what you do after you are saved. And so there's confusion in the church. There may be confusion sitting out here today. And I say these words to you in love. You do not have to be good enough to get into heaven. You need to accept the free gift of a crucified Savior who was risen on the third day. And then when God the Father looks at you, the only answer that you need is for why you should be allowed to be in heaven for eternity is the applied blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. It was the payment for your sin, and it's all that you need. Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That's a repentance. That's a turning from an idea that the world would want you to believe. Maybe if you're good enough, right, this cosmic judge might allow you to be in heaven. Maybe if you can do enough good things. So repentance, very important. What else were they doing on their mission? Well, they were casting out demons, right? There was the the ministry of setting people free from oppression. We saw that when Jesus got to the other side of the lake. Uh, There was the man that was possessed by a couple thousand demons. And then Jesus cast them into some pigs. The pigs ran off the cliff into the water. Crazy story. Uh, They anointed them with oils. The the, the men, men and women who were sick, the children, they anointed them with oils and they healed them. There was a healing ministry of Jesus that was passed on to the disciples. 
They have the power in Jesus' name to heal many. And, and Jesus wants them to know that. He's shown them, he's trained them, he's taught them, and now he's sending them out. Now, oil in the Old Testament was used uh, to set things apart, to put a blessing on. Um, and, and again, we, we see the anointing someone with oil as a symbolic setting them apart for God's purpose, right? For the Holy Spirit to work. And we believe that. Jesus faced a, a opposition, but when he did, he only pressed on harder. He used uh, this, this multiplication model that we've been talking about, right? Uh, he was investing in others to have them do the same. And, and this should be a challenge and an example to you and I today. Not just because you attend the Grace Works Church, but because you're a Christian. We need to be motivated by what Jesus Christ is teaching us, not only in these last couple of verses, but throughout the book of Mark so far. Who are you investing in? Who are you raising up? Are you replacing yourself in ministry? Husbands, you need to be investing in your wives. Wives, you need to be investing in your husbands. Moms, dads, investing in kids. And if you don't have kids yet, you're investing in your friends' kids, right? You're investing in someone at your workplace that needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You need to be investing in those around you that have heard of God but don't understand God yet. I'm telling you, I've met with a ton of people this week. It was a crazy busy week, and I praise God for that. But I have talked with people this week that are all over their place on their thoughts on God. And I thank God that I spent a ton of time in this on Monday so that I was prepared to share where those people were at and move them along that, that path as they are understanding Jesus and, and the relationship that God the Father wants to have with them for the first time. This was apparently an effective strategy because Jesus' fame spread. So we're going into the part B here of this, uh, of this, this story, how we're going to tie it in. So that was kind of the live well. Jesus was teaching his disciples, right? This is how we're going to do ministry. This is going to be good, right? Let's go ahead and read this. King Herod heard of it, okay? We just talked about that. Jesus must have been doing something right because people were hearing about it. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So, again, the it here refers to Jesus his teaching, his miracles, combined with the fact that even his disciples were out there now doing the same. Herod is hearing about what's going on out there. Um, we've seen people previously in this observe the authority and the power of Jesus uh, and trying to rationalize it, figure him out, understand the source of power. We've, we've seen those people approach Jesus and interact with him. And here we see Herod, uh, the one who was in charge of the land. Verse 14 and 15 come up with some theories or uh, some of the theories that people had come up with on who Jesus might be. John the Baptist, who has been raised from the dead. One of the very first things Mark wrote about was the ministry of John the Baptist. All the way back in Mark 1.14, we talked about that, right? We learned that John then was imprisoned. 
That's as far as we got in the story. Somebody else said, hey, he might be Elijah, or other people were saying he might be one of, uh, or he might be Elijah, one of the greatest prophets from Israel, right? Uh, one of the only one or two men that, that have entered into heaven without tasting death. There were a couple different stories in the Old Testament where prophets were taken to heaven without tasting death. So they were thinking, maybe he's come back. Maybe he's the one out there preaching the good news. Or he's a prophet like the prophets of old. Others had said he was a prophet, right? But maybe a new one, less heavenly than if God had sent back one of the the two that were taken. But look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Uh, Now, Mark, who is a good writer, he gives us exactly what we need to know. You're kind of going, well, wait a second. I don't even know what's going on there. Last thing I heard, John the Baptist was doing ministry and then he was in prison. And Mark, you're giving us a spoiler here. What's going on? We don't know the rest of the story, right? Well, here Herod's opinion is given because this next section is going to highlight this. In fact, it seems like Mark purposefully sandwiches these stories. He's putting all this goodness together. Got the bun. We're seeing the meat and we're going to see the bun here. Why? Because likely Jesus faced oppression just as John the Baptist had and the disciples were going to. So if you're going to take this story and apply it to your life, know that if you are doing what you are called to do, which is sharing your faith, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and the the change that can come through that relationship, you're going to be faced with oppression. Opposition will come for a disciple of Jesus, you and I, right? But how we live and how we die can have a purpose Do you believe that today? Okay. A few of you do, or at least are willing to say it, right? You believe that the way that you live can make a change in somebody's life. If you truly believe that, that is inspirational. You can make a difference in someone's life. And how you die can do the same. Uh, We're going to see a story about that. So opposition really shouldn't deter us from our mission. It should actually inspire us. If you have opposition in your life, it should cause you to want to move forward. That means you're doing something right. And if you truly believe that Holy Spirit is in you and with you and is not going to leave you, it should inspire you all the more to move forward. We now get to the story of how John the Baptist perished. And and it will become obvious why Herod has such a guilty conscience that we see in verse 16. Right? Like, uh, wait a second. John the Baptist, the one I beheaded, has been raised? Gets him a little bit freaked out. Let's finish out this story here. Picking up in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because he, right, Herod, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So this is really interesting, right? So this is the why that John the Baptist was arrested. According to the Old Testament law, Herod, 
had sinned greatly when he had an affair with his brother's wife. Okay? When you think you're in charge, when you think you're above the law, you're going to do things that you think you're going to get away with or that you can get away with for a while. Then she divorced her first husband and married Herod. Now, I'm sure John knew it wasn't going to be popular to tell Herod that what he was doing was a sin, was sinful, but he did it anyways. And, and just as calling sin, sin, so often does, it ticked off somebody, right? Herodias, right? It wasn't Herod. He apparently still had a conscience. He knew what he did was wrong, but he was still willing to listen to John. I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you're saying. But the woman involved here, right, she hated him. She wanted John dead. Herod, however, was conflicted, right, in his relationship with John. He imprisoned him, but he kept going and listening to him speak, preach, talk, whatever, whatever, however it came across to him, Herod would literally go into the prison to hear him speak. He was perplexed and yet listening gladly. But hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So we're going to continue on to verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of the kingdom. Does this story or this little vignette sound familiar? Perhaps if you were here when we went through the study uh, of, of the book of Esther, it will. Because something similar happened here. We'll get to that a little bit more in a second, right? Now this scene, it, it's not, I'm going to make it PG, but it's not exactly PG. So if you as adults are reading through that and you're reading into it some stuff, that's meant to be there, right? This dance that she performed uh, wasn't just a normal dance, right? This wasn't butterfly kisses at a wedding or anything like that. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Um, and, and, and so there was something going wrong in this story. This was something uh, that, that should not have been happening in the presence of her father-in-law, or, or stepdad, I should say, and all the men from the kingdom. Now, the promise that the king makes here at the end is almost identical to King Ahasuerus's that he made to Esther. If you hop back to Esther, right? Uh, again, I said we would get right back to that. Up to half of my kingdom. Okay? The king was pleased. He enjoyed this, and he made this over-the-top offer. You can have anything you want to, up to half of my kingdom. It's kind of a proverbial reference for generosity, a hyperbole of sorts, right? Because you wouldn't have to do this too often and you would have no kingdom left. If you gave away 50% at a time, it's going to go pretty quick, right? But both here and in Esther, the, state, the statements that the king makes were in a drunken state. They were partying, they were having a good time, and, and they talked foolishly. Drunkenness often leads to bad decision-making. I've been going through a proverb a day, one a day. There's 31 proverbs. It's awesome. And so I've been reading a proverb a day. And uh, there's, it's wisdom literature, right? It gives you a piece of advice and what will probably happen, okay? So it's kind of cool. You're reading through it. You've got all kinds of stuff going on. But when it talks about drunkenness, 
right? It talks about it making a fool of you. You do things you shouldn't do. You say things you shouldn't say. Bad decisions are made. Now, back in the Esther story, you'll remember that uh, Esther's uncle Mordecai was behind the big ask, right? She, she would make of uh, this, this ask of the king, Mordecai was the brains behind it. And here, similarly, uh, there's someone behind the scenes in this story pulling the strings also. Uh, but malicious and evil Herodias will show her intent here in these next few verses. And she went out, the daughter, that is, and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately without haste to the king and asked, saying, I want, me, or I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Okay. This is kind of a heavy story here, talking about uh, John the Baptist. It, it, it shouldn't surprise us, though, in some ways. Uh, here we see um, Herod had had an issue, had some sin in his life with his brother-in-law's, or his brother's wife, right? So sexual sin was the initial issue, and it continues to plague him in this story, right? We see more sinning because he's not thinking very well. Okay? And then you add drunkenness to this story, and there's more sin, right? And now he's been painted into a corner. He's protected John from Herodias all the way up until now. We see that. She wanted him dead. He said no, right? Man of God, holy. I'm listening to him. I'm not convicted, but I'm going to listen to him, right? And now his big, generous offer has gotten him into trouble. We're going to keep reading here. Uh, in verse 26, the end of this story. And the king was exceedingly sorrow, or, or sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The snowflake had fallen. The snowball had been created. It started rolling down the hill, getting bigger and bigger. And pretty soon there was an avalanche and they couldn't control it. And that's what sin does. So if I'm talking to you today, brother or sister in Christ, and you're toying with sin, you're tempted, you're, you're, you're like, I could get away with just a little bit of it. Let this story speak loudly to your heart in the quietness of your own mind and soul, right? You start with a little, and it just continues to grow, and it gets bigger, and, and pretty soon you're crushed under the avalanche. And that's what sin does. It typically gets, it just gets worse and, and worse and worse. And that's what happened here. Now, uh, you could ask the question, could Herod have gotten himself out of this predicament? He had made this promise, but yes, he could have. He could have said, I promised you a gift uh, and not a crime. I'm not going to kill somebody, right? I, I said I'd give you a gift, or, or you said I promised you a gift, not one for your mother, right? You make the decision. Or even better, he could have referred back to Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus 5, verses 4 to 6, says this, or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, 
in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these that he shall confess in that which he has sinned. He shall also bring a guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on behalf of his sin. Herod was eligible for this law. He could have said no. He could have said, I spoke foolishly. I was in error. And and there was a provision in the Old Testament scriptures on how he could pay for that. When you're considering sinning, it won't seem that bad at that moment. At least the ones that we as Christians entertain, right? This isn't going to hurt anybody if I tell this white lie or whatever it might be. But then once you've sinned, don't you always see it for what it really is? Right? It doesn't seem so bad. I could just do this. And then when you do it, you go, man, alive. I blew it. I really screwed up. And it cost John the Baptist his life. When, when his disciples heard of it, it says they came and took his body and they laid it in a tomb. And this should sound familiar if you've been in the church for any time at all. Uh, John Mark purposely highlights the similarities between John's death and Jesus' death, right? In a foreshadowing of sorts. This, this passage shows that people who preach repentance and point to Jesus as the Messiah can expect opposition, persecution, imprisonment, and perhaps a martyr's death. This is the comfort for the disciples who suffer for their witness for Jesus. It doesn't relieve them of their suffering or or hold out the hope of escape, but it does enable them to see that they are in the best of company. This has to be some encouragement. Historically, martyrs have found strength in remembering that they are a part of a large company of who have been shared in the sufferings of their Savior. We are not prepared to live until we're prepared to die. Reverend Lawan Adimi, a pastor in a Christian church in Nigeria, was kidnapped on January 2nd of this year in the Boko Haram attacks, right? Uh, in the nearby area, north we, uh, northeast corner of Nigeria's uh, Adamara State, right? On January 5th, there was a video released from this pastor pleading for help. Well, he asked his fellow church leaders to help him by soliciting, uh, soliciting the governor to do something about it, right? Governor Fintiri to intervene. He was also resolute in his belief that God was in control of this situation. And no matter what happened, it would be good. He says, by the grace of God, I will be together with my wife and my children and my colleagues Right? He says this in this video, and then he goes on and says, if the opportunity has not been granted, maybe it is the will of God. I want all people, close and far, colleagues, to be patient. Don't cry. Don't worry. But thank God for everything. On Monday of this week, a reporter broke the news that a Demi had been beheaded by the Adawama State. 
Pastor Ademi had faith in the midst of a life-threatening situation that he was in, and they took his life. He understood that God could deliver him safely home or that God could call him home to heaven. What he didn't do was renounce his faith. What he didn't do was change his message. He simply trusted in the will of God. Pastor Ademi put his faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and today he is more happy and whole than he has ever been, although his family and his church mourn for him. Live well, die well. Those of you and I who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that is the challenge today. That is the challenge today. We're going to go into a time of worship where we're going to celebrate through communion. And the, the, the act of the cross is what should motivate you and I to live well, to be ready to die well. And so when we, when we sing and we have an opportunity to, to go before the Lord in worship, we also want to provide an opportunity to remember the cross. And Jesus, on the night he was portrayed, uh, was there with his 12 disciples, his closest friends. And he said, as often as you drink of this bread or eat of this bread and drink of this cup, remember me. Because he knew that the, the, the cross, the sacrifice on it, was the thing that could change lives. And that story hasn't changed here 2,000 years later. If you want to become the woman or man that God has called you to be, you need to focus in on the cross. You need to focus in on Jesus Christ. You need to focus in on the sacrifice that was paid.